Welcome to episode 8 of the Women's Wisdom, Our Journey in Emergency Medicine, a production of the Women in Emergency Medicine section of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians dedicated to board certification and democratic group practice. In this episode, Dr. Adriana Bani interviews Dr. Vanzella Bryant on her journey through emergency medicine. Welcome to AAM's podcast, Women's Wisdom, Our Journey in Emergency Medicine. This is episode eight, really is version 2.0, where we decided to focus not only on female physicians, but in light of current events on black female physicians. Your hosts today are myself, Dr. Adria Ottoboni. I am an emergency medicine physician practicing community medicine in California. Uh, and we're very, very fortunate to have Dr. Bryant, who's going to introduce herself and tell us a little bit about what she does. Hi, I'm Dr. Von Zella Bryant. I practice at Boston Medical Center, where I am currently the Director of Undergraduate Education, um, Clinical Assistant Professor at BU School of Medicine, and recently named uh, Assistant Dean of Student Affairs at BU School of Medicine. I love that. That is fantastic. A lot of, lot of stuff going on in your life. You must be incredibly busy. So we're really grateful that you're willing to take time out of your busy schedule and with us. Um, Glad to be here. We feel like listening is really a part of the path forward to advocate for change within emergency medicine, which is why um, Dr. Quenzer and I do this podcast, um, why it's important to us. I feel like one of the most powerful so- sources for bringing communities together and advocating for change and working towards solutions is when we have people tell their stories. I think it is one of the most transformative things that we can do is have people tell their stories about the path that they have been on and where they're going and where they want to go and what it's been like for them. So obviously there's a lot to unpack here in regards to Black female physicians So I was just going to make a disclosure up front. We can't possibly cover it all today, but we're going to try and at least talk about some of the main issues. And hopefully Dr. Bryant can give us some insight into what it has been like for her and some of the ways that we can make progress, um, at least within our profession. So, So Dr. Bryant, I'd love to start by having you tell me a little bit about your heroes. I would really like to know who inspired you. Well, I'm from Kansas City, Kansas originally, and the the cheesy answer is always my mom and my dad, who weren't doctors. My mom and dad um, were very, they were teachers um, at their Sunday schools. Um, they did a lot to help in uh, the community. My mom actually was a director of a community center in the inner city of Kansas City, Kansas. Yeah, so my inspiration to just want to help others, um, I feel like that comes from my parents. But as far as doctors, <laughs> there were no doctors in my family, at least not that I knew of growing up. I found out later on there were a couple of you know, second or third cousins that were doctors. But uh, I had an aunt that was a nurse or maybe a nurse assistant more than a nurse. But that was pretty much all that I had as far as medicine. As far as why I chose to be a doctor, well, again, helping people. I love to help others. But then loving science is one of the other things. As a scientist uh, or being a doctor, you have to learn different pathways or different 
chemistries to be able to help make your patients better. So I feel like that combination made me go towards the direction of being a doctor. I'm sure your parents were enormously important in you um, believing in yourself, but I'm also curious, I guess what I really want to know is, right, who out of, outside of your small family circle, you know, was there some impactful moment in your life, some crossroads in your life where someone outside of your family circle told you to believe in yourself in a way that had not happened before? You know, and like, how old were you when that transformative moment occurred? Or if there was a transformative moment, which, you know, for some people there has, for most people, I find that there is some moment that they recall where someone outside of their family told them like, hey, like, you can do this. I I feel like... My parents, I'm sorry. They're awesome and great. <laughs> I'm going back to my parents. Like my dad, my dad, he would say every morning, well, I got up to go to school or get ready for school. And uh, he'd give me my Flintstone vitamin um, in the morning for breakfast. Who's the smartest, sweetest, prettiest girl in the whole wide world? And I'm like, me. And I was like, <laughs> so he really got my ego to make me feel like I am awesome. And then, then I found out, and my sister is 10 years younger than me, and she actually ended up going to medical school also, and she's um, practice, practicing sports medicine. But yeah, it turns out he was telling her that also. And so I thought <laughs> that was huge for a dad to, you know, encourage, um, uh, you know, a young, their daughters that they can do anything. But then also the church was really big for me growing up. Because there was a lot of things at church as far as the mantra that if you see it and believe it, you can achieve it. And 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 we would go through different quotes that we would have to memorize, like the Malcolm X quote of um, education is the future um, to the future for those who prepare for it today. I mean, there was a lot of like as far as in the black church, that was where we were inspired that you can do you know, you can be whoever you want to be and and you shouldn't, you know, feel held back. So growing up um, in church, that's where I, I don't know, I found my foundation to be inspired to be whatever I could be. But to tell you the truth, in college or even in high school, hip hop, <laughs> hip hop has kind of been my my new inspiration that I can do whatever I can to be whatever I want to be. I mean, seriously, when you listen to some hip hop music and it talks about the story of the African American life in so many different ways, and also unfortunately, it tells a lot of the stories of um, the policing problems that we are highlighting today. But you would have songs like Nas who would say, I will not lose. And I'm like, I would play that song in my head before like maybe having to do a presentation or get myself ready for a test. Um, There's just so many uh, inspirational songs um, of being at the bottom and just scraping yourself up to the top and not giving up in hip hop. So I feel like having that in me too kept me going through throughout my undergrad years and my medical school years. Actually, even to now. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think about the church. And and I'm, I'm just going to say I'm not as super religious as I used to be. But when I had thoughts on it for the history of African-Americans in this country, and it's been so hard. It's been so hard. 
and having that faith to hold on to, to get through these hard times of slavery and then just, you know, just of not getting certain jobs just because of your skin color or, or the sound of your name as far as getting, because there's the studies that show that 50% of white students apply applications get called back more than um, having a black sounding name. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. just the opportunity gaps that we have been seeing over and over, which are being highlighted right now. And I, I totally get it why black with African Americans or African Americans held on to their faith through all those hard times. Can you tell me about instances of racism and systemic bias that you have encountered in your professional life so far? To tell you the truth, every day that I go to work, so I changed my setting as far as the hospital settings that I work in. So I used to work in a community emergency department when I first moved out here to Boston about, oh boy, 2004, so 16 years ago. And the patient population didn't really have that many minorities out there. I mean, I enjoyed working out there. I I had a great team of MDs that I worked with, but um, yeah, just didn't really have that many minorities. But then an opportunity came up where I could came over to Boston Medical Center to join the clerkship as assistant clerkship director. And just the vulnerable patient population and more diverse patient population, we serve about 70% our African-American or Latino population. A lot of homeless, uh, we have a, a large number of homeless uh, patients that come through, um, a large number of substance abuse also, of which actually looking at the studies, um, the numbers for uh, substance abuse as far as opioids, that number is creeping down for white Americans but for African-Americans and Latino-Americans and even Black women, that number is starting to creep little bit by little bit. And I think it's secondary, too. And, and I'm just saying, like, the patients that I see in my emergency department, I just see the effects of systemic racism as far as them not having the opportunities that others have had. I mean, when I read the art of this article on, like, the wealth gap, And when you think about it, property, uh, if you own property, that's where you can develop wealth. And and from 1619, when the first slaves came to this country, okay, we we were slaves. But then when we had emancipation and whatnot, I mean, you still didn't really have your own property um, to own, your own land. But then um, in 1913, it's when we had, let's see, the Federal Housing Administration, uh, and you read about redlining, how, well, well, even before then, there's years and years of um, legal segregation, <laughs> where it's like you couldn't even try to live in the better neighborhoods. But with the um, redlining, there was legal seg- segregation where if you had you know, a Latino name or Black name, couldn't really get a mortgage uh, to be able to live in these better, better, better neighborhoods where they're safer. But when I say safer, there are studies to show that if there's jobs in certain communities, it's less crime. So I, I got to put that out there. But then also you couldn't live in neighborhoods that had better quality of health care. I mean, that you could exercise, but then also have better food choices. I mean, I drive through neighborhoods in the bo- outside the Boston area, and it's like Wendy's, Burger King, Pizza Hut. I live in a neighborhood right now, and I'll say it's called Brookline. 
And yeah, fast food restaurants were banned. You, you can't, they, they will not have a fast food restaurant in our day because we know that those food choices are not healthy. Also, you have the, the schools. Um, you have better schools in certain neighborhoods. And, and if you can't even get loans to be able to live in these better neighborhoods, then your, your kids' education may suffer. And you have that education gap uh, where you want them to go to that great university or college, but they don't get the same prep as uh, the kids that go to the more affluent neighborhoods. So it's just looking at the history in our country of that. And I see that with my patients. And also we see that with the disparities or how um, the underrepresented in medicine, as far as physicians, to this day, there's about 13% or our country, the population is 13% African-American, but we only have 5% African-American physicians total in, in, the, in the country. And then when you look at emergency medicine physicians, uh, that number is even lower. And as far as Latinos also, it's 16% in the population of the country. But again, as far as total workforce, uh, physician workforce, um, that number is about 6%. So just looking at that disparity and you're like, why, why don't we have that many Black doctors? Why don't, why don't we have that many Latino doctors? And I couldn't answer that question when I worked at that other hospital when I was asked that, where they were like, you were able to do it, Von Zella. Why aren't there that many more? But I didn't have the great answer until now it's being highlighted and the light is shining on all of these, the systemic racism that pretty much uh, prevented us. And also imposter syndrome. I mean, we've had, I, I think as women, like, hello, <laughs> imposter syndrome is huge. But then that imposter syndrome is affected by the bias that we've been noticing in the literature for like um, the, the words that are used in the evaluations, like even in the um, MSPE, wait a minute, medical school performance evaluation. Yeah, no, I was I trying to make sure yeah. I remember what It's it. impressive, right? The differences in just the semantics and the language and the words that they choose is even just when yeah. you take it out and look at women versus men, not even, you know, blacks versus non-black. It's really, when I started reading yes. those studies, I was... Horrified, actually. Horrified. So I already have imposter syndrome, yeah. yet I'm still not getting great wording in my evaluations because, because of the color of my skin. Tell me about that. Do you ever have imposter syndrome? Oh, most definitely. All the time. But then in my head, again, <laughs> I go back to my hip hop. <laughs> those rappers, they sound very confident. Even though I have to say, and I'm not going to get political, I have to remind myself, that guy in the White House, he always feels very confident in himself. And it's sad to think that he doesn't really know what he's doing a lot of times. So I feel like I have to really uh, increase my confidence when I have presentations just because, you know, other people, they don't feel as confident. But then... There's the thing about Albert Einstein having imposter syndrome and Steve Jobs had imposter syndrome. So, I mean, there's some some greats and I have to just that maybe I'm just in that category sometimes. So there's sort of this uh, this sort of horrible dichotomy where we want to encourage black physicians. We want to encourage minority physicians. We realize it's not happening. We realize we're losing them in the academic pipeline. And so what they do is they create a 
Diversity and Inclusion Committee, and then they put you in charge of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're the Black female physician? Great. Now, guess what? You have a whole new list of administrative tasks, and we're going to put you in charge of it on top of all the other weight of being a Black physician. We're going to add to this, and now you have another job, and no, we're not going to recompense you for it financially or take away from your research you know, requirements just because we're doing this, because obviously it's going to be you. So I I don't know how you feel about that, but it seems unfair to me. It actually developed a team. We called it the Jedi team. It's justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. So it's a team of faculty and residents that that share that load of going out and 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 helping us like dig up the articles that would be supportive of our diversity efforts and then also digging up the articles that are that would um, help us out with our recruitment practices so you're right i mean you got to share the burden share, share the load you know when I, th- I think about it i didn't talk about um, mistreatment and discrimination as far as um, minorities and also um, women how we have higher rates of reporting these things. And so what we started in our department uh, um, is a microaggressions as a bystander um, sessions, as far as going through vignettes, well, just looking at what a microaggression is, as far as um, things that seem like they're innocent or maybe the intent wasn't there, but the impact was a different thing as far as like, oh, you're so articulate, Dr. Bryant, which is kind of like weird because articulate is kind of something you would say to a little kid, but maybe using a word like eloquent or whatnot. Um, also, another thing is I had a res- I have a resident that grew up in Connecticut, um, but his family's from Haiti and being asked where you're from. And I know you guys probably heard this scenario where they're like, no, no, where are you really from? And he, he says that he's from Haiti. But then it's followed by, oh, man, don't you feel sorry for the people oh, that live there? Oh. It's like, ooh, I mean, even though no. you really no. that's not cool. And so our sessions are like, we know these vignettes, these uh, cases that we present to them sound awful, but let's like come up with strategies um, or what we are little scripts that we can use for whenever we hear something like that. And that didn't even get to like the most harsh um, vignette, but I'll just keep it at that for now. Or even women, like female physicians were called by our first names, yet our male colleagues are called Dr. So-and-so. It's like, yeah, I've been seen by some gals, but I haven't been seen by the doctors yet. I'm like, that was an attending in a resident. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I love it when I put in a central line and then they want to know when they're going to see the doctor. (laughs) You're like, do you really think that they... I mean, do you honestly think I'm a nurse and I put this central line in you? Funny thing is they're usually so embarrassed when I point it out. So embarrassed. And, you know, if I pointed out like, well, you know, actually, I am I am your ER physician. You know, at least 50% of the time, the response that I get from the patient who's typically in an older age category and um, usually not a minority is that they are so embarrassed by their sort of implicit bias that they didn't realize they had and they didn't realize that they were using to sort of view you from this perspective. It's sad, but I think it's encouraging that a lot of my patients, at least, who have done that have been like so apologetic. And I don't think you would have seen that 20 years ago. 
Yes. And, and then I feel bad. I'm just like, I feel bad that you feel bad, but then how do I counteract that where I shouldn't feel bad, right? When I, I don't know, it's weird. It's so weird. Like what on TV, what did we see on TV as far as doctors? I mean, it was like, you know, Bones from Star Trek or Hawkeye from MASH. And, and I mean, it was like male doctors. I mean, it wasn't until what Dr. Quinn, medicine woman, that we were like, oh, okay, there's a woman doctor on TV. <laughs> and then ER started to have more and more. But then I always say for African-Americans, though, we had Denzel Washington playing this Dr. Chandler on St. <laughs> Elsewhere's. And then we had Dr. Cliff Huxtable, which is like, womp, womp. <laughs> know any Black physician friends, colleagues, personally, who have left academic medicine and why? I really, I want to know, I think, you know, there's so much that we try and do in academic medicine to encourage women and minorities to stay in the quote-unquote academic pipeline, which is not a term that I like, um, but they, it seems to be very little in terms of asking people who have left, like going back to them and saying, why did you leave? And then learning from that. Uh, to tell you the truth, um, when I was at that community hospital and I was, well, actually, no, there was another African-American female that worked with me for a little bit of time. And then she left uh, for Georgia. I didn't really have uh, other black physician friends that I knew, which was so isolating. <laughs> and, and thinking about that, um, I didn't know about this organization called the National Medical Association which is like the grown-up version of the Student uh, National Medical Association. And so at, in Boston, we are trying to um, develop our New England Medical Association. So it's like the affiliate of the, uh, the, big, chat, the big association. I'm just saying that because if I had this, this group that I have now of other Black physicians and I made friends with OB-GYN, doctors, neurologists, I mean, then these conversations that I have are sharing my experiences with other Black doctors, it just feels more like, oh, okay, I'm not weird to, you know, like you said, like we were just talking about when the older white male didn't think that I was the doctor and I felt bad that he felt bad and, you know, like, is that weird? But now I have developed a community of, um, of new doctor um, friends. But let me think, say this, um, I feel like, after you graduate from medical school, after you graduate from residency, and like a black a black physician has so much debt, you know, so much debt where actually the average households and this was an AAMC I believe 2015 uh, survey where the average uh, income for a white students household was greater than a hundred thousand dollars for believe 40%. And I'm sorry, maybe we have to check these um, percentages. But for African Americans and Latinos, 30% um, had less than $50,000 income households. So I mean, you kind of scraped your way to be able to go to medical school, go to residency, and now you're a physician. So ac academic life, I mean, you may not want to do that. You may just want to go straight to the community and start making some money. I mean, I thought it was really powerful when Bloomberg ended up uh, paying for the medical school tuition for uh, African-Americans going to the historically Black medical school, Morehouse, because there's two big ones, but I'm pretty sure it was Morehouse. And, and I thought that that was a huge play 
in helping to take away this huge debt, meaning that <laughs> there, that, that is a huge barrier for African-Americans to even want to think about going uh, becoming a doctor in the first place. But as far as uh, Black doctors in academic medicine who left, actually, when I think about it, I'm just thinking about folks that just never even ended up going into academics. They decided to just do community or do per diem. Yeah, just because. Of the do you think it's all about the fi- about the debt and the finances? Yes, yes. Okay. Because I mean, because our salaries, um, uh, academic salaries, aren't as much as a community. And, and to tell you the truth, like I said, I worked at this other hospital for thirteen years, and I feel like I developed a, a nice little nest uh, or a cushion for myself for when I came over to the academic world, where I'm like, eh, it's not as bad. I mean, I don't feel like you know I'm being. It will roof over my head, clothes on my back, food on my table. That's the main mantra. So I never felt like I was really struggling when I came over to academic medicine. Or we're not struggling because I have a nice little nest because I worked in community for as long as I did. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I have a, a tragedy question. I would want to know what you've had to do to try and fit in. What parts of yourself have you cut off? Have you repressed? Have you not given voice to in order to fit in either to the profession of medicine or just in other areas of your life? Well, I, I used to straighten my hair or relax my hair uh, back in the day. And, and I feel like that was my way of fitting in. And in fact, <laughs> at the other community hospital I worked in, my colleague because there was another uh, black woman that worked who had natural hair, um, short natural hair, and and actually <laughs> she was very eloquent all the time. Being a woman, me being a woman from Kansas, I don't feel like I'm that eloquent all the time. But yeah, my colleague, my white male colleague, would say, "Oh, Vanzella, uh, you're the white girl of, of black women." And I'm like, that's not cool, mm. but. <laughs> Things like that. I mean, I loved him to death, but I, I didn't know how to speak up to that. I'm like, oh, whatever. Oh, <laughs> to open your mouth and just fall right in. Oh, no. I no. know. And, and, and I just felt like I was always just able to pass. I, I am brown, but light brown, but not super light brown. Um, I do have green eyes um, or hazel eyes, um, of which... I, I'm realizing that, you know, and there's so much is coming up through our history. But yeah, both of my parents are African-American, Black, brown eyes. I mean, my brother, I have a younger brother who uh, ended up getting brown eyes and my sister has hazel eyes, which were like, oh, was that the milkman that came back? But no, I think it's our history of slavery and and maybe I could do the Ancestry.com, but my family reunion. We actually um, went to the plantation in Louisiana where our family came through. And yeah, I'm pretty sure that these light green eyes um, come come from slavery. And so I guess I'm saying all that, like I've always felt like I passed as a non-confrontational Black woman, um, but it was really painful to, you know, to, well, painful to hear from my colleagues um, when they would talk on Black Matters um, as far as why they're not, you know, taking care of their families, like um, 
like they used to back in the day, even though when you think about it, um, what was that like back in the day? Uh, one of my colleagues said it was because the black, uh, because black people aren't as religious as they used to be. And maybe that's why, you know, the families are falling apart. But I came up with the answer probably a year afterwards or sometime afterwards was like, but look at mass incarceration where families are being divided up over, you know, mother or grandmother or father or grand, granddad um, going to jail for maybe, maybe selling marijuana or maybe, you know, nonviolent acts. And, and then Blacks are like fined way more than whites as far as the social justice. So it's, it's just, you get trapped in the system. Yeah, and unfortunately, mental illness, I feel like there's so much mental illness that's looked at as being bad behavior. I mean, there's bad behavior too, but mm -hmm. I just unfortunately think about all the mentally ill people that are in prison, especially African-Americans, because there's that statistic that one in every three black men born ends up going to jail at some point in their life, of which that is not targeted at all. That is, I'm sorry, <laughs> let me go back. That is targeted, that is not by chance. That's what I'm trying to say. That is not, by, not chance. by chance. Not by chance, not by chance. Targeted. And my brother, he's been to jail. I mean, I feel like when you go to jail, you just never really come out right. I mean, there's things that you see, <laughs> things that are done and, yeah, and you expect that person to come out of jail to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Well, it's a little bit harder, especially if you have a, a, a record. And how are you going to get that job? Working with young people, even though I know there's bubbles, though, and I am in Massachusetts, and but still, I feel like nationally, just seeing what's going on with the resurgence of Black Lives Matters, as far as you know, you see young people saying, no, this is not right. And I feel, uh, and even Obama has said this too, just working with young people, you have hope for the future. And what can a young Black person or a Black student uh, resident do? Well, one, I want you to grind hard and, 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 and study hard and, and, and know how to become the best emergency medicine physician that you can be it's hard um, when you get distracted by um, little microaggressions. And I said little, but death by a thousand paper cuts, people say they're, they're not little. Um, but having allyship as far as having, you know, folks who aren't black, uh, who are going to understand. I mean, I don't want us to be victims. I mean, we're not victims because um, we worked hard to get to where we are. We're just at disadvantage. So just just take on that 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 goal. And that's for me, I just see the goal of improving the health care of my patients, even with all the opportunity gaps and, and the systemic racism stuff that has affected their lives. Yet keep that goal in mind uh, to be the best emergency medicine doctor that you can be uh, so that you can um, play your part in making the system better. There's probably tons of other stuff. Oh, and mentoring, giving back, um, and not just just Black students and residents giving back. I think that everyone um, needs to do their part in giving back and just teaching young folks of color or young um, people of color the steps that they took to be where they are. And this even goes all the way up to um, leadership. 
I mean, there should be leadership pipelines. So when a junior faculty member joins um, the department, get them involved in faculty development or as soon as possible. Get them a mentor as soon as possible, because the studies have shown that um, the first three years of being in academic medicine can either keep you in academic medicine because you got that mentorship and faculty development and you kind of got shown um, the ways of getting those grants and getting doing research to leaving academic medicine. Yeah, that, that, as far as a, a Black resident and junior faculty, find those mentors. And the mentors do not have to be Black. They can be anyone. They could be any gender. They can be any sexual identity. But as long as you um, get some advice or get those pearls on how to succeed, um, that's going to be uh, big. And also knowing how to say no, because if you're being asked to do all these diversity inclusion things, you got to figure out how to say no. Which um, I, I loved how uh, in one of my faculty development courses, you just kind of lay it out for the people who ask you to be a part of something else and you just kind of lay out all the other activities that you're involved in and and say, hey, do you think that this is just as important as all these other things that I'm in, into? Yeah, learn, learn, learning how to say no is very important. I have a question, but just personally, I mm -hmm. want to know what the answer is. So how do non-minority physicians encourage Black and other minority residents? And what are the boundaries on that discussion? So from my, like, you know, I'm, I'm never going to know, you know, what it's like to be in your shoes or to be in Faith's shoes. That's just never going to happen. And so when I talk to my Black residents or my minority residents, there's always this trepidation that I am going to say the wrong thing, that my, you know, implicit unconscious bias is going to give me away. And I'm going to say something that is, you know, a microaggression that I'm not even going to realize is a microaggression, or I'm going to say something that steps over the boundary of what is acceptable to this person. Um, and instead of helping them, I'm actually going to harm them. I'm going to push them further away. So I struggle with that a lot. I don't know if other non-minority physicians, especially the ones in positions of power or in academic medicine, struggle with that. But I know for me, it was always kind of a barrier. Like, like how far can I go in this conversation? Like, can I ask anything? Are there some things that are, you know, not acceptable? How can I be helpful? It was, you know, it was hard to know. Yeah, so that's a good question. So one, setting pri uh, diversity as a priority, like why is it a priority? Is it just that we just need more brown, black bodies and positions in, in the hospital? No, it's a priority because we know that uh, it's going to be important to help um, for better patient health care outcomes, but then also help to decrease um, bias uh, among the staff and also the patients. The patients may be seeing more brown, black workers in the workforce are going to be like, okay, may I trust um, what they're telling me to do and follow our medical recommendations. And then two, like if you're involved in the academic program, having these conversations about implicit bias and microaggressions and it just embedding this in the curriculum is going to be very important. Or even doing literature reviews on like what we were talking about earlier about how um, there's the um, bias and evaluations um, um, as far as gender, um, gender and also for minority students and residents. And, and also, hey, 
I mean, you don't have to share a beer with your your um, black or brown um, resident or student. Well, maybe not with the students so much or faculty um, even, but just developing relationships outside of the hospital setting is going to be so helpful as far as being able to have these conversations, even though these conversations can be awkward or maybe I'm not sure exactly, or just like what you said, it's like, I'm not sure if that was the right thing to say. And I even fess up uh, myself with certain um, students and my LGBTQ or residents, because sometimes I'm like, wait a minute, that didn't sound right. Was there, did that offend you? Or was there a better way that I could have said that? Or, or just having that conversation. I think just having, um, building these relationships are gonna be very important for non-Black colleagues. You have so much to say. I'm so, I still have, I have like a million questions that I would, I would keep asking you for another three hours. It's a conversation that's going to have to linger for a long time because this systemic racism thing isn't going to fix itself anytime soon. So we just got to keep, keep at it to work together to see what we can do to make things more equal or, e or equitable instead of just equal. So it's going to be a lot of work and it's going to be so uncomfortable, but I feel like Let's just keep working at it and we can make some things happen. Thank you so much. So grateful that you were willing to do this with us. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, visit our website at www.aaem.org. Find all episodes of this podcast and our other podcast series on the AAEM website under resources and then publications. Join us again next episode for a new journey through emergency medicine.